listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. So let me ask our audience as you rush towards the end of the quarter and you start planning for next year, have you solved the challenge related to ensuring you're hiring the right salespeople for 2019? We all know hiring is difficult, especially in sales. I mean, come on, if you can't get a job, should you really be in sales to begin with? So we want to talk about today. Once you understand if they can sell, do you know if they will? And to help us explore the topic, we have with us Liz Roche and J.B. Bush, both managing partners at VSA. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks, Chad. Excited to have a conversation today. <laughs> All right. So before we jump in, we'd like to get one question out of the way so our guests get a feel for who you are as individuals. And <laughs> I randomly, <laughs> randomly decided to pick the most memorable airline experience <laughs> you've ever had since I know all of us travel ridiculous amounts. So Liz, what's the most ridiculous airline or memorable airline experience you've ever had? Yeah, and I, let me just start by saying I travel in and out of New York, so they're all ridiculous right now. Guardia <laughs> is a mess. The one that jumps to mind sounds weird, but recently I had a memorable experience sitting in the middle seat in coach on a return trip from a European business trip slash vacation combo. Oof. And I know, right? It sounds really weird. And I was really pissed and I was wanting to call my travel agent and I didn't do any of that stuff. But I did something that I hardly ever do, which is engage my seatmate. My husband was on one side and this woman showed up late, very harried on the other. And I, I never do this because I don't want to talk to people the whole way. But I did, I did ask, you know, where are you coming from? It seems like you were quite rushed. And I learned that she was returning from a volunteer trip to Africa where she had been helping, I know, women at risk participate in micro economies to help support their families. And this woman told me she had lost her luggage on the way over there. So for two weeks, she had not much more than the clothes on her back. And as she shared the circumstances of her trip and the women she was working with, it really made me grateful to just be on that plane at all, even in the middle seat. And it kind of gave new meaning to me, at least to the, the notion of, you know, the middle seat is a first world problem. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it definitely is. Right? And since we're kind of recording this around Thanksgiving, I'm sort of thinking, yeah, I was, I was very grateful for that middle seat. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. So, JB, now you have to find an inspirational <laughs> airline. Oh, this, this, is, this is so bad because, <laughs> you know, we all travel so much. We've all lost luggage. We could tell a thousand stories. But, you, you know, you said the memorable one, and this one's just so bizarre. So, I live in Southern California. You know, there's, you see the Hollywood thing here and there. But I was on a plane probably 15, 20 years ago. And on walks the plane is George Hamilton. <laughs> the actor George Hamilton? The actor. And he had on a fur coat <laughs> that went from shoulders to his ankles. His tan was spectacular in <laughs> January. His teeth were white. And he, you couldn't take your eyes off this guy. He owned the plane. He charmed. <laughs> as much as you don't want the guy, it's the first time I've seen somebody and there was an aura about him. And I just, you know, he was larger than life. I, I'd never seen him like I said, come on. He was a character of himself, but he owned it. And I have to think <laughs> that was clearly the most humorous but memorable 
because you couldn't turn it. Yeah, when I was looking around, looking at George the whole time, he knows you're looking. He's looking back, and he's waiting. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah like I knew this good. Yeah, he almost bought around for the entire plane. It was, it was, it was wonderfully memorable. All right. Well, that opens a lot of doors that we're not going to explore on this podcast. Exactly. So let's talk about evaluating sales professionals, right? So it's it's more black magic than sales itself, and, I, and yeah. most sales execs I know, yeah, can't seem to crack the code. So let's start with why evaluating your sales team is so critical. Liz, you want to help us understand why we should be doing it? Yeah, for sure, Chad. You know, it's super critical because you have to know, not just know, but know quantitatively where your team is today, where they're starting from to help you inform how you're going to develop them. And really, you need to think about four strategic questions and the answers to those questions. So the first one, if you're a revenue executive, is can your team be more effective? Just literally, where are the opportunities to improve effectiveness? The corollary to that, the second question is, how much more effective can we be? Even if I had a silver bullet and I had some magic and I waved my magic wand, can I get my sales team to where we need to be? Third question that I need to answer is, if I can, what will it take to accomplish that? What kind of investments do I need to make? And the fourth answer you need is how long will it take to accomplish that? Knowing quantitatively is key. You need that information and that information is based on actual selling competencies. So just still by way of of, of context and why it's so critical to evaluate quantitatively, um, you need to look beyond personality assessments because those measure traits and they assume relationships. Some people like to look at behavioral assessments where you look at a specific group of behaviors and you look at a select group of people that have those top behaviors, but that doesn't predict success because you're not looking at the non-behaviors. The non-behaviors may also have the same behavioral traits, um, and when you put them in different groups, they may have different qualities. Aptitude tests, a lot of people look at aptitude tests, which is also not quantitative because what you know is not what you execute. So <laughs> knowing something... Isn't that called sales? Yeah, right? <laughs> I, exactly. I know how to play basketball, but I don't execute basketball because <laughs> I am five foot nothing. And that's all about looking at how you can execute. Not only can they sell, but will they sell? So this is more, you, you keep using the word quantitative and I, and I want to highlight that because I'm one of those guys that came up and would, would believe that it would be really difficult to quantitatively assess salespeople because, you know, we've all seen the cliches. I mean, we, we all use them when we work with clients. We know the, you're supposed to be charming. You're supposed to, you know, be able to convince people to do what they don't want to do or buy when they don't want to buy. So how do you quantitatively get into that is, is a starting point. And we'll, I know we'll dive into that. So... JB, help me understand how I don't get charmed by a sales rep. How do I avoid the cult of personality? Yeah, well, that's that's it. I mean, if you're if you're a sales leader, it's a critical role, and you, it, it's it's often we take more time 
figure out what we're going to have for dinner than we do who we're going to hire to represent our company. <laughs> right? Because you look good, you smell good, it looks great on the menu, and it comes late and you find out later, that, that's, not, that's, not what I, that's not what I ordered. So I'm looking for data points, right? List got to get to it. And the quantitative thing, yeah, it's not just numbers, but there's so much data, graphs, white papers, charts. Point, this only points to how good you look. But I think what Liz said earlier, first of all, can you sell in our environment? You know, because what you said, what you sold last time might not be what we're selling here. Our sales cycles might be different. Who we're calling on might be different. The way we position it and the conversation we have around business output might be different than we had before. And even though you look good and you're successful before, it doesn't mean you're going to be successful here. So as a sales leader, I'm trying to look for some data points to just help me make better decisions. I mean, there's there some predictive data that says, okay, here's where you're going to fit, but also here are the weaknesses that I can work with so I can ramp you up a little bit more effectively and are your are the doors even open for you to be coachable to take those that coaching that we're looking for so you know there's still that element do you represent us well but there's more to it it's a it's a much you know when we're looking for well-rounded players i'm just looking for data points to make sure i'm getting the right people on the bus well, and most sales execs, I mean, they'll start to believe, okay, if I need to answer those questions that, that Liz was talking about, I'm going to focus on how I get them to prospect better or how do I get them to close more effectively. Yeah. Uh, but there's more to it than that, right? There's a lot more to it than that. So help us with the contextual picture here, Liz. When I'm evaluating sales professionals, what else besides behavior or past performance success should I be looking at? Yeah, and that's such an important distinction because past, past performance success tends to be what people look at. But revenue executives really need to look at sales competencies. And JB and I kind of look at these sales competencies in four buckets. We mentioned one earlier, you know, can a salesperson sell? Like literally, are their specific selling skills appropriate? You know, and here we think about things like, how well do they hunt? How well do they qualify? How well do they prospect? You know, this is the blocking and tackling stuff. But here's something that people don't think about. It's, you know, will they sell? What is their desire, their commitment to do what it takes so long as it's sort of legal and ethical to do a deal? What do the salespeople do every day when things get difficult, when economic circumstances are cyclical? You know, what is their will to sell? The third category are things that get in the way of selling or neutralizers right? Like, you know, what are your self-limiting beliefs? Like, I don't like the prospect. That's one of mine. I it suck at like prospecting. Therapy, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm just saying like, you know, uh, right? my, <laughs> it's I, kind of, she's got a cardigan sweater on. Well, it's so funny though, because it's kind of like your sales DNA. What's getting in the way? You know, do you do you buy in a way that's going to prevent you selling optimally? We can talk about that in a bit. But I just want to mention the fourth category that JB and I really like to look at, which is sort of, I'll just call it other unique factors relative to sales. Like, what is a salesperson's, you know, figure it out factor? How self-supportive are they? Are they constantly relying on their manager for answers? How coachable are they? How well do they posture themselves as a salesperson when they walk into the room? So it's some of those less than tangible skills that absolutely have to be measured quantifiably with data. 
so that you can get a sense of, uh, you know, contextually, where is your sales team? And it's, and it's not just behavior. So I'm I'm still struggling here because I'm hearing a lot. First off, that did remind me of therapy afterwards. (laughs) I want you guys to know that I I feel like I've accomplished something. I've had a moment of enlightenment. Oh, do you feel better? Do you feel better? Do you feel worse? That's the question. I'm going to have to do more therapy to figure that out. Uh, We don't know whether to invoice you yet. (laughs) Oh, you can send it. I'll just send it over to wife number two. But when we look at this, like I hear a lot of, I mean, we're talking behaviors, we're talking things that I don't think most sales execs would truly believe can be quantitatively assessed. Yeah. So I have to play the skeptic here and and help me, help me understand how are we going to do this? What does it, what does it look like? And then how are we going to convince sales execs that the results they're seeing are going to be accurate? JB, you got anything that's going to get me over the edge here? I don't know. I mean, Liz and I have struggled with this too. It's more than just skills. And, you know, you've heard it forever. You and I, we're all in the sales game. We are in the changing behaviors. And are salespeople really born? Are they built? Who knows? But people say, God, you know, you're born to be a sales guy because you got all those soft skills. But then when you break it down and you look at, you know, our craft and all that goes into our craft, you know, the ability to, to hunt, prospect. Now you got CRM, social selling, the ability to present, to ask questions, to uncover the business case, to be able to talk about, you know, big ticket items with the right people, your commitment level, your desire level. There's so much goes in to be successful in our role that it's more than just soft skills. So then you start to look at it, go, okay, how do I figure out if you got it? If you're going to be successful in my environment, what do you take a Myers-Briggs personality test? You take a behavioral test because some of your top performers and your lowest performers might have the same behaviors. So when you start to look at it a little bit, can we at least just take a snapshot, some findings, if you will, against the ideal, the ideal salesperson that doesn't work or doesn't work, <laughs> that doesn't exist. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. We want to know what that yeah, is. Yeah. I want to know some of those guys. Because we all... <laughs> we've all got gaps and the best of the best are continually trying to improve. Well, improve against what and what's the benchmark. So the idea of, you know, quantifiable and the analytics here is, can we get a set of findings here? I put myself against the Michael Jordan and say, okay, where, where do I excel? And where are some gaps so that I have a roadmap, some data points to make better decisions on where to make investments as a sales leader than just some soft skills because training isn't always, you know, we hear it all the time. I need my people to be better closers. Well, closing is kind of overrated. I think closing is the natural outcome of a well-executed sales cycle. Do you qualify well? Do you ask the right questions? Do you navigate the you know, decision-making process effectively? Are you having the conversation around, you know, business value, business outcomes? If you're doing all of those things, then we're closing. So when we look at the analytics here, can you present me with a, you know, a set of findings that allows me to make better decisions more than just personality tests? All Long right, so, answer to a simple question. Well, no, but it's, I mean, I just confuse you at a higher level. No, no, no. You just, you raised a really good point. There are so many things that sales professionals have to do today. They have to be good at, right? So you, most people just lump it all together. That's right. A salesperson, right? But we, you're all right. Now I'm following now. Now maybe you got me closer to the fence, right? Now we got to get me over. But <laughs> so it's like, okay, how am I going to assess all these now? When we were prepping, Liz, you mentioned something about 21 core competencies and then a host yeah. of other associated competencies. I'm not sure I want to go through that test because that's I'm probably going to tell me more about myself than I want to know. <laughs> but, yeah. but, get, but give therapy. me an example. It's give me frightening. An example. 
we're yeah. Yeah. And, and so Chad, let me, let me give you, give you an example and, and let me, let me frame it up because JB, JB mentioned something earlier, comparing ourselves to the ideal and an ideal that, well, doesn't work because they've been so good and they can retire, but actually doesn't exist. And we've been talking a lot about quantifiable assessments. And the key is what goes into that data repository against which you're going to create this composite perfect seller. We actually have found an assessment from a group called Objective Management Group or OMG, which is not, oh my God, (laughs) OMG, that's comprised of 26,000 companies and almost 1.8 million salespeople across 200 industries in 43 countries. So it's a super rich repository that when you compare a particular salesperson or sales manager against, you know, and using these 21 core competencies, you get just a very informed and deep data analysis. So let me just give you an example of two cool of cool competencies that you probably don't think of. You know, people think of things like ability to close and as JB said, hunting skills are kind of overrated, but look, we're all thinking about it, you know, building relationships. I had someone tell me the other day that my sales guys are, sales people are great at building relationships, which is helpful when the economic cycle is up, (laughs) but when it's in a trough, those relationships are tough. So here's what might surprise people. One of those 21 core competencies is something that we like to call supportive buy cycle, which is how a salesperson individually makes a major purchase and that informs how they sell. So do they think things over? Do they comparison price shop? Do they do research and think something is expensive even when it isn't? If they do this personally, it means they'll accept that behavior and those objections from their prospects. And that might not support an ideal sales outcome. Another interesting one that we've been alluding to all along is commitment. And this is so important to the whole idea of will they sell? Like a willingness to do whatever it takes so long as it's legal and ethical (laughs) through all economic conditions. What do those words mean? Yeah, Yeah. let's just be clear. Legal and ethical. So so selling when it's not easy uh, and just having this unconditional commitment. So, all right. So there's ways. So there's 21 competencies. There's an amazing database of what good looks like, right? This is if if we can compare ourselves against that. Now, what do you do when you run into an exec? And we've all heard this. I just hire A players. That's enough. Like I I just hire A players and let them do their thing. How would you respond? (laughs) How would you respond to that exec? Compared to what? (laughs) Right. You know, that uh, if you just, if you look at it just objectively, of course we all want A players, but we don't always get first pick in the draft. There's just so many out there. So when you look at what we're trying to do, and I love the objective of that, you're just trying to find people who are going to succeed in your environment. And the question becomes, yeah, that should be everybody's mantra is I want to hire A players that work well with within my environment based on my sale. How long is our cycle? How big is the deal? Who do we need to be in front of? How do we differentiate? What are the true skills I have to have in place? Is it a hunting role or is it a, a nurturing land and expand role within, you know, whatever? Is it a three-month fast 
West Coast offense type of sale, or is it a 12-month nurture? Two different completely environments. So, yeah, you want an A player, but let's at least profile what that looks like so that that individual has the competencies to succeed in your environment. Because you and I both know, Chad, there's nothing worse than hiring somebody, investing a ton of dough in training, development, tribal knowledge, only to see them walk. Right. Nine months, 12 months later, and it didn't work out. It's it's expensive. What is it, a 3, 4X now? That Yeah. At it, least. At least. So, uh, again, compared to what? And so we, all right, so we need, so sales execs out there, listen, you need to, you need to know your environment, which we hadn't touched on too much, but you really, how many people walk, you know, I know sales execs walk in and they go, oh no, I know how to sell. And they don't even do the assessment of the environment they're walking into and are they successful? So we're talking about doing this assessment and this understanding of what good looks like, not only for the individuals we want to bring in, but within the environment. So there's two pieces to the puzzle there that they need to look at. And it sounds like all of this should be done before they start doing sales training or sales amplification sales transformation, whatever, whatever cliche yeah. you use this week. How do you convince a sales exec? You know, what do you say to a sales exec? Says, I don't have that kind of money to invest in, in assessing and doing that type of assessment and then the training. You know, I'm not going to get that kind of investment budget from the board or whatever. Yeah. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, deciding to spend a, to spend a bunch of dough on sales training without really knowing what problem you're solving is putting the cart before the horse. And, you know, do they know for sure they're solving the right problem? And could they invest differently and prioritize differently if they knew what the real problems were? For example, we have a client who's just invested a ton of money in methodology and they're wondering why it's not working. They think they've done everything right. But what they didn't appreciate is that their managers are part of their problem. Their managers aren't able to manage salespeople, hold them accountable for results. Um, Not great coaches. They actually, their managers are big rescuers. And as JB and I always say to each other, you know, as go your managers, so go your salespeople. And you won't know that without first understanding the current state of salespeople, managers, executives, and also the, like the systems and processes in place, the management strategies, the alignment. So when someone says to me, I can't afford to do both, my question back is, well, can you afford not to understand your starting point and, and can you change your investment mix to solve the right problems? Yeah. <laughs> can I add a little color to that? Liz yeah. and I are working with a, you know, a multi-global you know, company right now. When we were asked to engage because their salespeople weren't selling and they felt there were some gaps and they needed some assistance on where the gaps were so they knew where to place their their development dollars. You know, some of it was around value selling, some was around presentation skills, some was around CRM training. Well, what's been very interesting for the client is that the salespeople weren't the problem. It's the sales yeah. managers. They're not coaching. They're not holding people accountable. They're not motivating. You know, they don't believe in those things. So it shifted how they were going to invest. We're thinking, okay, let's do all this stuff for the salespeople, which will come. Let's get ahead of this and put some of that, those investment dollars in the management team. And it was an aha moment. Otherwise they might've thrown a bunch of dough at the sales team and not gotten the lift they were looking for. That's an ex- it's an excellent point. I mean, we see it all the time because of the work that we do, right? That's right. But yeah. you know, the managers are the key. And we say that, we try and say that right up front. But if you're not assessing that you have not just the right salespeople, but the right managers, you still have a broken machine at the end of the day. Well, yeah. think about it. We talk about it all the time. <laughs> Most managers, he or she, were promoted from being a great quota carrying, exceeding 
busted through their number and then they say, you know what, Chad, here's a team over here of 10 guys, make them do what you did. Good luck. Yeah. Right. yeah. For, and they, it's a different skill set. It's a completely different skill set of selling the bag and selling, carrying a quote on a day-to-day basis via hitting a number through others which is a different skill set. And the assessment allows you to look not just that we're talking about the 21 core competencies of the sales individual, but also those leadership qualities to carry forward the flag of the processes we're trying to drive, the mission statement of the organization, the ability to coach people up and to motivate them when they walk in flat, nah, I don't want to be here today. And how does a manager engage with them to help them get over that hump? Yeah. And how many managers have you seen that have, you know, they've gotten that promotion and they do it for about a year and they go, wow, this... Yeah, I'm going sucks. back to carrying a bag. <laughs> and, you know what, and you know what they do? They're, they're faulty. You know what, Chad, just take me out and I'll close the deal for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's not scalable. It's not. That's not scalable at all. Excellent. All right. So let's change direction a little bit. Um, we ask our, all of our guests two standard questions towards the end of each interview. And the first is simply, as a revenue executive yourselves, that means you guys are a prospect for other sales professionals. So I'm always curious to understand how somebody who doesn't have a, a, a referral into you, doesn't have a reputation or a relationship with you, how they are going to most effectively capture your attention and get you to give them 15 20 minutes of your time. So Liz, how's somebody going to capture your attention when they don't have that relationship or that referral? So Chad, this probably won't surprise you to hear me say this, but my, my, my thing is show me, you know me. And I know I'm not the first person to say that, but here's, here's what I mean. Do a little freaking research about what I might be struggling with or a problem that I might have. Don't just pitch me a generic email or leave me a voicemail. And you and I have laughed about this because what I might actually just do is turn the tables on that sales rep and try to help them solve their <laughs> Yeah, problem. I have seen you do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I have. So spend five minutes, do a little research, and then reach out. That will always get my attention. All right, JB, what's going to do it for you? Oh, boy. You know, I, I wrote this down. It's give me... Uh, a little bit of authenticity, obviously, is, is front and center. But let's just have a conversation first. Don't sell me. I, you know, I'm, I'll talk to anybody any day of the week, but let's just see if there's a fit and any value in taking next steps. And so many people come at me hard. First of all, they get my name wrong. Or, you know, they're not as punctual as it could be. All the table stakes and stuff we know. But to Liz's point, not only have you done some homework and that it's worth it for me to spend 10 or 15 minutes with you, but don't, you know... Selling's a natural outcome of us just having a conversation, get where we've got to, got to be. And I think it comes through. I've got a BS meter, and I think our clients have a BS meter. I know if you're there to help me or to sell me. And right. if you're there, I think that comes through pretty quickly. And to me, that's just a bit, it's a differentiator. And that comes through in the tone of our emails, our voicemails, and how we handle that first conversation. Because I think you'll get the first five minutes, and then I'm looking for a way to get out. But if it's authentic <laughs> and we're having a conversation, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm yours. So to that, to that know me uh, approach, I got to give an example and I don't normally do this, but literally uh, yesterday, there's a, a knock on the door. I get this package. I open this package and I open it up and it's got a little, uh, two little airline bottles of Jack Daniels in it <laughs> wrapped, wrapped in a little Harley Davidson vest. And it just says, the note on it says, I just need 15 minutes and it's a phone number. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> this this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. 
And so I call and it's a guy who's been trying to get a hold of me from email and social interactions. Listen to the show because I'm obviously pretty upfront about what makes Chad tick. Mm-hmm. And, and he sends me this and we end up having an hour and a half conversation yesterday. It was the most impressive display yeah. of prospecting I had seen in a long time. That is um, awesome. So can I throw a story on top of your story? Yeah. It was in a workshop and we were talking and we, we go through the framework and we, we talk about the concept of the anxiety question, asking a question that piques curiosity, gets them to think about the future when people really aren't engaging with you. And so uh, this, this individual dropped me a note and said, I've been trying to reach this one exec for the longest time and I've had no luck you know, circle of influence, all that other good stuff. He puts, he finds out that this individual is a huge Duke basketball fan. And so he takes an anxiety question, puts it on a basketball, (laughs) and he sent the basketball with the anxiety question to the exec with the same thing. His name is phone number. He said, the phone rang just like that. I said, that's the most creative thing I've seen when you want to come on in. Just because he did something different, he obviously knew the individual, but he tied that to some sort of business outcome or business challenge that individual was having. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it, look, the, we all like you know me. I could talk prospecting forever, but that personalization and that and that creativity goes a long way. As does as does humor. So, all right, last. Dude, we're question. just trying to have fun. We're just trying to have fun. You know, we're trying, <laughs> to make money. we're trying to say you know make sure that baby gets new shoes. But man, we're just. Trying to have fun. <laughs> Yeah, I just like to say I got to change the oil on my Harley. Yeah. Right, last question. We call it our acceleration insight. If there was one thing you could tell sales, marketing, or professional service people, one piece of advice that if they listened, you believe would help them crush their targets, what would it be and why? Liz? So th- this is a hard one because we all love to give advice. But I, think, <laughs> I, think that, I think that my my sort of most most profound, at least for this moment, piece of advice would be understand your personal sales strengths and weaknesses as compared to an an ideal salesperson, a perfect salesperson who might not exist, but really be fearless about vetting your skills and understanding what you need to develop and put in place a plan to, to really develop those muscles so that you can become the best version of yourself that, that you can be. Perfect. JB? I'm going trust, but verify. And I think I that I think that goes with a couple of different things. I think it speaks to your question earlier on how do you get through the, you know, the, the veneer of that good looking salesperson. I trust you, but let me just verify. Let me ask some questions on that. It goes back to value selling. We talked about the plan letter. Hey, I trust you, but let me just verify I heard you correctly and that we're on the same page. Just a little bit of just don't go into the night blindly. Let's just trust, but verify. Excellent. Perfect. JB and Liz, I cannot thank you enough for taking time to be on the show. It has been oh, absolutely good to be with you. I think I'm going to have a Jack Daniels just in your pocket. Tomorrow is Drunksgiving. Just so there, yeah. there you well, go. Well, thank, thank you for the invitation. Always good to be with you, my friend. Yeah. All right, everybody. That does it for this episode. Check us out at b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, family, coworkers. You know the drill. Give us a review on iTunes. Until next time, we have Value Selling Associates. Wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.